Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello, and welcome to the fourth installment of Pride Mix here at Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Dusty. June is LGBTQIA plus Pride Month, and during the month of June, our episodes are called Pride Mixes. Pride Mix is a chance for us to dive deep into queer history and how it intersects with the national parks and the National Park Service's role as America's storyteller. And speaking of storytelling, let's talk about oral history. Oral history, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is the collection and study of historical information using sound recordings of interviews with people having personal knowledge of past events. And without oral history, we would not have queer history. When we look at queer history now, what has been collected and the information we have is largely made up of oral histories of those who lived through these many significant events. And places like the GLBT Historical Society of San Francisco and the Lesbian History Archives that we spoke about in last year's Pride Mixes, both of which were started by small groups of people and a few boxes, and now are major resources for queer history. And without the oral histories of many pioneers, particularly that of activist Tamara Ching, we would not know what life was like for queer people, particularly trans people in San Francisco's Tenderloin District during the 1960s. The Tenderloin District of San Francisco often comes with a connotation for being sketchy and underdeveloped. The word tenderloin, while also being a term for cut of meat, also means a neighborhood in a city riddled with vices and corruption, often policed by corrupt cops. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And that is precisely what was happening in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. The Tenderloin District was also a place of community for queer people in San Francisco, specifically for trans people. All right, so let's zoom out for a second. All right, so let's talk about terms, Mm -hmm. you know, like words people use to identify, Mm -hmm. right? We have so many of them, which is like the beauty of language language, and also sort of like the ever-evolving LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. We're discovering new terms for identity every day, right? right? And so like, you know, I remember when we were growing up, you know, a thousand years ago was not really, it was not that long ago, but it was like 
even then the terms were like gay or straight. Like that was that. Right. That was that. Those were the terms. Pretty, uh, right. Succinct. And then bi was this, bi was a term at the time. I remember like so many people had so many opinions about because they were like, I don't even know that that exists. Obviously that does exist. Sure. And we very much affirm that. But at that time it was like any sort of variant in between was just not acknowledged or was, uh, not even well was rarely well, adopted was, by and anyone. Also, probably not any sort of way to kind of categorize it. One and right. also, if there wasn't like a movement behind it, like there is now, was we think about the LGBTQIA plus movement just as that as like a bigger body of individuals. It's so much easier, I feel like, for those identities to become a recognized and then uh, b like just ushered in as something that is true and does exist as opposed to then I feel like that may not have been the case at that point in time. They always say that there is hope and confidence in like having a term for how one identifies. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember hearing the word gay for the first time. And I remember in the moment going like, Oh my God, that's it. That's, that's what I am. Like, and I think Mm. I remember being five years old and hearing it and like having to have someone explain it to me. And then inside I went, that's it. I'm so glad there's a word for what I'm feeling. Yeah. I think I I identified with it, but I also think I was, I think I was ashamed of it. You know what I mean? I mean, it was was in the same breath afterwards. Yeah. It was was like, like, Oh, this makes sense. But Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. Oh, certainly. Certainly. There's that factor, (laughs) but there was, I distinctly remember that moment of relief knowing that there was a word that existed for mm-hmm. what I was feeling. Yeah. We came out a long time ago. I right. think it's worth a saying if, if it's something that you're interested in, mm. like what, what terms, what identifying terms you claim and why? Well, I would say that I'm a cisgendered gay male. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is pretty much like, even if we think about like the term cisgender, that was a term that was like, right. so like, what? What does that mean? Right, like right. even it just that was a few years ago where I was right. like I didn't have the grapple on that. Yeah, I feel like that just adequately defines who I am as a person, um, and it makes the most sense to me. Like it feels that feels right. It feels correct. Like I know obviously there's been a lot of a lot more trans visibility, and I feel like that's been really wonderful, especially for. Kid, like students, kids, because I feel like there's so many students I have now that I teach that have been a little bit more willing to um, identify that way, um, where that may not have been the case before. And I feel like more and more people have started to come out as trans or non-binary or any other number of identity that they feel. Um, but for me, gay still feels correct. What about you? The the terms gay and queer both. Uh, really resonate with mm. me. Yeah, I claim both and yeah. often say that the word queer when referring to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just feels the most correct yeah. for me. Yeah, and I think that's like, you know, I think that's to a person, obviously. Obviously. And I feel like that is, it. You're, you know, that idea of it being such a homecoming and like an right. understanding of who you are yeah. and like a, to be able to like pinpoint that is, it is wonderful because it, sort of gives you your your group like that you can self-identify with and it gives you perspective on right. where you came from and where you are. 
Now, we understand that there is a clear distinction between a trans person and a drag queen. We have talked about this difference many times on the show before, uh, but it is always a helpful thing to reiterate. I really like how Joanna McIntyre defines it in her article in The Conversation. Quote, Put simply, transgender refers to a personal gender identity and an authentic, lasting sense of self. In contrast, drag is a temporary and deliberate performance of gender. End quote. And in San Francisco in the 1960s, we had yet to discover the delineation in these terms. Terms like cross-dresser, female impersonator, and drag queen were often used interchangeably. And it was during this time that the discovery of the word transsexual gave many people a sense of hope and clarity about their own identity. And the term transsexual was the gateway for the discovery of the term transgender. And during this time, the, quote, gay community was the collective and widely used term. The Tenderloin District in San Francisco became a central community for many trans women during this time. They competed in drag balls. There were the hotels where many of the trans girls lived, often after being rejected and disowned by family, finding family in each other. One place where they gathered was Jean Compton's Cafeteria. It was a diner restaurant in the heart of the Tenderloin, and it was where many women of this community gathered to eat together. It was open all day and all night. It was the spot to go after a drag ball. It was so popular that whenever the door opened, everyone would turn around to see who was coming in next. Let's go back to the corrupt police for a moment. This was during a time where one could be arrested for being gay, still practiced today in some parts of the world. But the police in this neighborhood often harassed these women and arrested them for female impersonation, sometimes even citing that the buttons were on the incorrect side of their shirt. And they would just toss them in jail. Sometimes they would force them to shave their heads. And if they wouldn't, they would lock them in in solitary, sometimes for up to 60 days. Cops would stop by Compton's cafeteria and just arrest whomever they wanted. It was common practice. Also prevalent in the Tenderloin at this time was sex work, as many trans women and queer young people turned to sex work to survive. Okay, so let me tell you about this documentary. Okay. It's called Screaming Queens. It's this documentary that was made by Susan Stryker, who's a PhD, whose research on um, this event that we're going to talk about in a second called the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Mm -hmm. Without her research on this and without like the oral histories of Tamara Ching and many other trans women at that time, Mm -hmm. we would not know about the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Okay. So this one interview, they have these many, many old interviews uh, from this time period or like a little after this time period, like the seventies, mm-hmm. um, there was an interview with a trans woman who was talking about how when she would go apply for a job dressed as a man, she wouldn't get hired because she was too effeminate or uh, too flamboyant. Mm-hmm. And then she would get hired when presenting as female Eventually, at some point, someone would find out that she wasn't born biologically Mm -hmm. female and um, turn her in and they would fire her. Mm -hmm. And so she says in the documentary in this interview, you know, I could make a hundred bucks a night working the street. So I would just go and do that. Uh One of these women in this community was Tamara Ching. She explains in Screaming Queens how sex work was a means of survival because of employment discrimination. Tamara Ching was born in 1949 in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Her father was Chinese-Hawaiian, and her mother was the first generation born in Seattle. Her parents were both from China. As a teenager, Tamara Ching found community with other trans girls in the Tenderloin District. 
She states in her oral history conducted by the Stanford Pride Oral History Project that the abuse that she endured in school was mostly due to racism rather than homophobia. During this time in the 1960s, a more vocal, politically active group began to form in San Francisco. This group was called Vanguard. It had many members, most of whom were white. In an interview, Tamara Ching explains that she and other women of color didn't feel welcome in Vanguard and didn't participate in their work because they always felt excluded. Soon after the formation of Vanguard, its members would often meet and chat their political planning at Compton's cafeteria often sitting for hours ordering only a cup of coffee, oftentimes becoming very loud and making a scene. This caused Compton's management to call the police about the Vanguard folks coming to the restaurant. Soon, this led to Vanguard members protesting outside of Compton, citing unequal treatment. This laid the groundwork for what would be a historical police raid. It was called the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. It happened in August of 1966. Tamara Ching says that she was not present for the riots because she was dating a policeman at the time, and he told her that there was going to be a raid that night. And given that she was underage, Tamara Ching stayed home. It started when a police officer came into the restaurant and tried to arrest one of the women. She responded by throwing her coffee in his face. This led to an all-out riot. Coffee cups were thrown at cops. Glasses, sugar containers were thrown through windows. The drag queens beat the cops with their heavy purses. They would often carry glass bottles in their purses for safety. This led to fighting and brawling, which soon found its way into the street and continued. About 60 customers from the cafeteria rushed into the street. By the end of the fighting, a police car had been destroyed and a newspaper stand caught fire. What makes this moment significant is that it was the first time in recorded American history, thanks to the oral histories of those who lived it, that there was a collective, aggressive, queer resistance to harassment from law enforcement. And this was three years before the Stonewall riot. So this is what we're talking about constantly, about Mm -hmm. how gay history did not start or end at Stonewall. Uh, Gay history is uh, millennia old. Mm -hmm. And um, Stonewall was one event that did get some traction and a lot of groups definitely attached themselves to that traction in order to mobilize. After the Compton's cafeteria riot, while things didn't get better overnight, there were steps towards greater acceptance. Soon, the San Francisco Health Department issued IDs for trans people, listing their confirmed gender. Resources slowly became available to the trans community, including access to gender confirmation surgery, and Tamara Ching became a vocal activist. I also want to add one other thing about these IDs. Mm -hmm. So while the San Francisco Health Department did do this, it was part of like this group called like the Department of Special Problems. So, like, you'd get a new ID, mm-hmm. but it would say special problem on the ID. Jesus. Right. <laughs> Tamara Ching specifically advocated for Asian people, for the gay movement, and for the transgender community, and later for HIV prevention. She was, as she states in her oral history, the, quote, first, only, and last, end quote, person to receive a grant from the Center for Disease Control specifically to work with immigrant sex workers. She also worked with Grandmothers Against Poverty and AIDS and the Asian AIDS Project to create the first transgender program, which was later replicated in organizations all over the world. She also worked with the Human Rights Commission to incorporate the words transgender and bisexual into the San Francisco Discrimination Ordinance, which helped prevent the discrimination of transgendered people when applying for public housing and being in public spaces. During the height of the AIDS pandemic, she and members of the organizations she worked with would pass out condoms on the street. She advocated for giving people two or more condoms instead of just one. 
Her advocacy work extended into her work as an AIDS counselor. She would sit with people before they were tested, and when they received their results, and if they received a positive result, she was ready with resources to provide them. She's been awarded many times over for her activism. She was honored in a mural in Clarion Alley in San Francisco, which was created by Tanya Wisherath in 2012. It is a mural commemorating the lives and work of trans women activists of the Mission District of San Francisco. She also received the award for best community service by an individual from the Harvey Milk LGBT Democratic Club. She also received the Visibility Award and Volunteer of the Year from the Grandmothers Against Poverty and AIDS Community HIV Prevention Project, and also a Lifetime Achievement Commendation from the California State Senate. We encourage you to listen to her oral history found at the Stanford Pride Oral History Project. Additional sources for today's Pride Mix include the Screaming Queens documentary following the research of Susan Stryker, and the article Ladies in the Streets Before Stonewall, Transgender Uprising, Changed Lives by Nicole Pasulka, published on NPR. When asked in her oral history if she had any final remarks for the LGBTQ community in San Francisco, she said the following. Quote, be yourselves. Live each day that you can. If you're in a relationship, don't fight. Don't BS. Life is too short to play games. Don't do it. Be productive. Strengthen and empower each other. Games are for children. Tricks are for kids. Don't do it. Love is so hard to come by these days, or even attraction. You see everyone on their iPads or their phones. They don't care about people. They don't know how to talk to people. I can go up to strangers and talk to people because that's how I am. A lot of people don't do that. So that's my advice. End quote. This has been Pride Mix by Gays at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to pride early and pride often, and that your pride means nothing unless it's intersectional. Gays at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gays at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. 